Blog Talk Radio. Introducing in the red corner, American Tennis! And introducing in the blue corner, your host for American Tennis, Mr. Chuck Creasy! Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to get in the game. Um, 
without saying anything, is this person committed to what they do? Are they a person of commitment? And also, don't you also ask yourself the question, does this person care about others more than just themselves? Does he shine or he or she shine light on other people, or do they shine the light on themselves the whole time? So I've sort of built on that, but that's a great Lou Holtz quote. But I recently, I think you can go on YouTube and get this uh, short video. He's speaking to the University of Texas's football team. I believe that is correct. And he's talking about his normal motivational things. It's a very good talk. But at the end, he says this, and this pertains to what we're going to talk about today. He said, look, fellas, he says, if you want to be happy for an hour, he says, eat a steak. He said, if you want to be happy for a day, play a great round of golf or go fishing or something like that. You'd be happy for a day. If you want to be happy for a week, ah, take a nice cruise. Take a cruise and with your family and you'll, you'll have, be happy for a week. He said, you want to be happy for a month? Buy a brand new car and it takes about a month for it to wear off. You'll be happy for a month. You want to be happy for a year? He said, win the lottery. You'll be happy for a year, and then you'll start figuring out, I guess, the problems that money win, or excuse me, but what winning money or getting free money brings also. But he said, if you want to be happy for the rest of your life, win a championship, become a champion. Now, as good as a, of a motivational talk as that is, it also has a tremendous, tremendous um, message being sent. And he's saying that if you win a championship, you'll remember it for the rest of your life. So I want to talk today about what winning a championship really is, what it takes, and then also I want to talk briefly uh, brief, briefly about what we're doing and how we might be able to to correct it. So with with this program, as you know, if you've been listening for a while, I absolutely have uh, just sick to my stomach over what is going on in the USA. And what is going on is the dumb down. We call it the dumb down. So many things, but the dumb down of tennis. And I have followed for a long time, directly followed, directly followed and been very quite a, very active. The last seven years, I've been documenting meetings. I have been documenting polls. I've been documenting votes taken. I've been documenting who is behind the push to, I have said, uh, you know, to dilute, pollute, and to prostitute the greatest game, the greatest sport ever invented, our sport of 149 years now, the history and the heritage of 149 years, why it's been going on, who's been doing it, and I've been trying to put two and two together. Um, they have absolutely put out these ridiculous pretenses like, oh, it's all about time. Oh, it's all about the education of the student-athlete. 
we care so much about the student athlete. We care so much about the youngster who's playing the sport. A very, and I don't want to get on a tangent here, but a very laughable thing was when a college player recently told me, I said, what was your record last year? He said, 13 and 9. I said, oh, wow, you played a whopping 22 matches in college tennis. Are you kidding me? Oh, no ad scoring. Oh, my golly. Now, talking about <laughs> talking about under under um, underachieving as far as uh, fitness and intensity and potential for learning, just uh, in, in talking about the dumb down, my friend looked at me and he said, you know, I coach junior players on the side whenever I can. I have a player that from January to June 1st, his match count was 69 matches. And you're telling me this college player played 22? Where I used to coach up in uh, Maryland, in College Park, Maryland, after I went to Thailand, from Clemson I went to Thailand after Thailand. I worked in College Park, Maryland, and we had a facility where a college team came in and trained at the same facility. And the college workouts and the college practices were absolutely laughable compared to our juniors who were 12 or 13 and 14 who were, were trying to make into champions. Our juniors were training two hours in the morning, two-hour match in the afternoon, an hour's worth of fitness, and then most of them would hit more on their own. They were training five or six hours a day. The college kids came in and did bump and giggle for a couple hours, and they didn't do much. They had one coach that pushed the guys pretty hard, but the amount of time spent on the court was really laughable compared to the juniors. So that argument that, oh, it's about time, we're trying to save time for the student, you know, that's – has nothing to do with it. And then other people say, oh, it's about the fans. We'll bring in fans if we have a shorter format. Tennis is not like the, the kind of sport where fans are going to go, oh, wow, let's run down to that college match. We're playing this new no-ad format. Let's sit there from start to finish. No, tennis is the kind of sport, if you're at a tournament, if you're at the U.S. Open, you might sit down in the grandstand or you might sit down in the big stadium and watch a full match if it's one of the top players playing. But for the most part, you'll browse from court to court to court and you say, oh, this is interesting over here. This this match is tightening up. Let's go watch this match. Oh, wait a minute. This is the young phenom from, you know, Francis Tiafo from United States. Oh, wait a minute. This is the young person. Oh, wait a minute. This is the person and you will go from court to court to court, and you'll browse and watch. But but very, very seldom, unless you're a parent. Now, if you're a parent, you will watch the entire college match. But most of the time, you will sit for a moment, and then you'll wait until the uh, climactical or drama-filled part of the match is over, and if somebody's starting to run away with it or something uh, – You'll walk over to the next match, and you'll browse. You'll say, let's go check out this one and that one. And tennis is that kind of a sport. 
people are always looking, oh, this person has been hot. This young phenom is coming on. Did you know this person's only 17? Did you know they've got a 38-year-old person over here qualified finally for his first Grand Slam? Those are the kind of things that people are interested in. But to save time and to dumb down the scoring system, it is, it's ludicrous to, to think that that is why that they're trying to do is to try to draw fans. The whole focus is not about time. It's not to draw fans. It's not for the safety of the student-athlete. If anything, the student-athletes are getting hurt more now because they're not training. They're not training. They've taken training out of the equation. Look, it's always about what your God-given ability is, the, what you've been exposed to as far as to training, and then your own desire. Those three things, nurture nature self, or ability, desire, opportunity, ability, opportunity, desire. Those three things. It's always been about those three things. So when you take training out of the equation, you take your ability to get reps out of the equation. When our college players only get 22 or 24 reps in a season, in a season, why in the world would any good player think that they're going to get better going to college, number one? Number two, high, sc high school tennis has got to be about the worst excuse for a sport right now. And I, I hate to say this, not in every case. There are some very, very dedicated coaches out there that push their kids. And they're trying to get the most out of them. But they play no ad scoring. <clears throat> they play abbreviated formats. It doesn't push the kids, and guess what? The best players don't play high school tennis, do they? The best players out there, they go play tournament tennis or they're seeking out something that stretches them and will get them ready for a higher level of competition. It's basically a social activity at the end of the day. It's an after-school activity. Now, it, it is not a vigorous sport. And if you college to high school coaches, I'm absolutely, look, my whole life, all I want to do is be a high school coach. I wanted to coach tennis and basketball. But let me say this, it's with no disrespect, but I will challenge you. If your high school format is leading college coaches to come watch your event, then I would like to hear, from, hear about it. But if a college coach is not coming to watch your high school event, that should be the litmus test because there's nothing there for them to see. College coaches do not, in every other sport, will go to high school matches and high school games and high school track meets and high school, and they'll go to even golf tournaments, high school golf, but they will not go to high school tennis matches. Why? Because it's been of the dumb down. So any of these people that have come out in the last seven years, I've been on this. The dumb down has started much longer than ago than this but the last seven years I've been on it I've been documenting things but it's not about time it's not about too hard for the student athlete it's not about it's not about fans it, it's it's you know with tennis tennis is not about it's not about the shortness of the event that gets people in the stands it's about the drama the intensity comes from the drama. Drama intensifies with each denial as it gets longer and longer. Excitement dwindles with each occurrence. 
That's why I'm so against the no-add scoring. Excitement is like being on a roller coaster. The first time, it's exciting. Second time, oh, that was fun. Third time, ah, let's go on to the Ferris wheel. It dwindles with each. If you've been, if you've ever watched one of these professional no-add doubles matches they're doing now, it, it just lacks the intensity. It lacks the, the developing drama. So that's not what it's about. It's not about that at all. What is had then what I've been I've been searching out lately is the connection to the gambling industry. And as as dirty as that sounds and look, we've the people have legalized gambling in professional sports and they're legalizing in different these different I don't even know what the rules are. All I know is that They've said it's okay to gamble now in sports. You can't do it in any intercollegiate or interscholastic athletics. You don't ever do that or ruin your career. But the bottom line, they've opened it up. So lately, in the last two years, I've been following that strand and wondering what the heck is going on here. Why have a lot of our tennis leaders in the USTA and the ITA been pushing these abbreviated scoring. It's not, there's no way in the world it's laughable to tell, say it's about time. It's laughable to say, oh, we're going to get on TV. That's the funniest thing ever because if we really got on TV, there's not a coach out there that wouldn't, for that TV match, do a, you know, they would do any abbreviated scoring that, that you would ask. But it's not about that. So I've connected the dots and said, look, it's it's got to be that they wanted to get the kingpin, first of all, of college tennis. Then secondly, what happens is you bleed it into junior tennis by telling parents and coaches, oh, you've got to get ready for the college system here if you want to play college tennis. And truth be known, there's very little chance for any of you high schoolers to play college tennis because all of the spots out there are being recruited on from around the world. And USA athletes are only getting 20 to 30% of the spots on college teams, and that's an absolute fact. And it's, it's mind-boggling that we haven't addressed that issue at all, and it's mind-boggling that the USTA that could do something about it is not doing a thing about it. All they would have to do is incentivize the recruiting of American players. Colleges are strapped, so so is the NCAA, because they have rules that are set up for everybody, I think, that are, they don't want them to be discriminatory. But the USTA, all you would have to do, fellas and guys and gals who work there, is let's give some kind of incentives to those coaches honor, recognize the best American teams, have an all-American, all-American team. Why not? But in the bait that we are putting out there for junior players is let's play no ad, let's play this tiebreaker for the third set because, because why? Oh, you'll be getting ready for college where you're not. So that's a big hokey pokey show. And they're not fooling anybody but themselves. They might be fooling parents, but anybody that knows tennis knows that 
the probably end result is that six or seven years from now, there will be very few college players, junior players that have not been indoctrinated and forced to play abbreviated scoring for six or seven years, and the water will be turned up a little bit at a time, the heat will be turned up a little bit at a time, to where that is what they know. That is what they know. So why would they want it in pro tennis? Why? Well, randomness pays the house. Randomness, random results. Interesting. So now we're coming around to the purpose of the program today and the point I'm, I'm getting ready to make here. And it starts by one of uh, my former players who's a top U.S. coach told me, he said, Coach Creasy, the reason, look, I'm telling you, I'll give you the names of three or four players who would love to play no ad in the pros. I said, you've got to be kidding me. Don't they know that it produces randomness? He said, that's exactly it. They don't have to train as hard. This guy's lazy and would rather not train. He'd rather just make money. And I'm not, <laughs> listen, the other day Djokovic came out and he said, oh, I'd rather have two out of three set matches. Well, why? Somebody said he just doesn't work as well. He works pretty darn hard from what I see. And guess what? doesn't make sense to me right now only because the matches are three out of five sets at the majors is he picking off majors but the bottom line he's after the quick fix more than some people who are believing in the traditional way of doing things I think absolutely Federer has defended the game he honors the game I think Nadal he would he would never want abbreviated scoring why because randomness becomes a big part of this. It's very interesting in college tennis when they started dumbing down things in the early 90s, it was practice hours. Well, who initiated this? This was some of those East Coast teams. I'm not going to bring it up, but some of the East Coast college teams, they had three or four coaches on the board of the ITA. They dumbed things down because why you dumb it down you take away work ethic and then it's about remember ability desire opportunity it's about talent talent level and the individual person you take out work ethic that is a program that works really hard guess what it levels the playing field for results Everybody has the same playing field, but when you lower the bar, what do you do? You level the playing field. So what I've always believed that some of these East Coast teams, absolutely, it's all right. Here's the saying. It's all right to be smarter than your hound dog. You don't want to have to ever outrun them. Well, the point being is that why should we work outwork somebody when we don't have to train as hard as they do? Well, excuse me, when we don't have to play a match that is a long match why should we outwork someone when we we don't the the really the bar has been lowered so there's a lot of u.s players a lot of coaches want shorter matches why less training why it's easier why same amount of money maybe in the pros less amount of work more money 
less work. In the USA, I'll tell you one player I doubt forever if someone like Stevie Johnson would want an easier format. That guy is tough, and I don't know him personally, but I watched him all the way through college. Do you know that his junior and senior year were two of the last years where they played traditional scoring and real – I'm not going to call it traditional. Let's call it real tennis scoring. And he went undefeated for two years. Actually, his father, who is deceased, who passed away a couple years ago, suddenly was on J.P. Weber's We Coach Tennis program. And on the program, he was being interviewed, and the question was asked, if they had played no-ad scoring, would Stevie have won when undefeated? He said, oh, no, absolutely not. He probably would have lost 10 matches or more because of the randomness of that. But what happened? Stevie Johnson, because of his toughness, his ability to construct points, his ability to take out the legs, beat the head, break the heart, and making the game fall. When you watch him play, you don't see what is inside his heart and what is inside his mind. You see the flash on some players, but Stevie Johnson is one of I, – I watch him closely – I watched the tennis Sangren very closely because he has worked so long and so hard to earn his way. I've always respected John Isner for the class act that he is and the tools, and he was always a good worker. He respects the game. He plays differently, though. He's not definitely not. He uses his strengths. He's not a grinder. But the point is, someone like, it would be curious, I guarantee Stevie Johnson would probably not want a, re, uh, a shortened scoring system. Probably he wants it to be tough because he's able to deliver enough body punches and he gets many TKOs. The damage is done for the smaller player. Those of you coaches out there that coach small people, my golly, are you telling me you're not going to be able to extend the games? Look, there's tournaments, there's matches, there's sets, there's games, there's points. Could you imagine how ludicrous it would be to say you could only have five rallies or eight, seven rallies, and then the point has to be over. Well, what we're doing is the next echelon, the next level is we're saying, oh, you can only have seven points and the game has to be over. Wow. What if you only said, hey, wait a minute, you could only play seven games. Well, that would be better than seven points, wouldn't it? What if, and then you could have, Oh, you only play this many sets. But the point is, they did the worst possible thing they could ever do in dumbing down tennis by shortening the amount of points that you can play in a game. Actually, the UTR people have proven that the only results that are credible are games played to four, win by two. Mark it down. I've had a lot of talks with with the, the people who came developed the UTR and invented it. Games to four, win by two if you want credible results. You might play mini sets or you might play shortened sets or short match, but you must have that games to four, win by two. But why did they do that? Why have they done no ad? Well, they did it. They promoted it for many reasons. 
but it was the easiest go-to by, you know, Jimmy Van Allen came up with it, and I don't know what his research was back in the 1970s, but there were college coaches that promoted it that gave them easier access to winning more matches and beating some traditional teams that they might not have ever beaten. So they were successful in promoting no-ad scoring in in making it shorter. So in other sports, could you, I want to make a couple points here. In other sports, if you take the biggest golf tournaments, let's go to golf. For example, the, the Masters, U.S. Open, the PGA, the British Open, etc. And you take all the golf courses in the world, what would you say were the toughest golf courses? Well, I mean, Augusta. Everybody said Augusta is ridiculous. I mean, every hole is named for the potential hazards that are in that hole. Who survives and wins Augusta's? It's never somebody It's just lucky. It's the best golfers of that week. It's the best golfers that can drive. They can hit their approach shots. They putt on the toughest greens, but it's the toughest course. The British Open is always great to watch. Why? Because it's a, such a hard course. Even the greatest of players get in trouble at the British Open. So only the person who survives a great, great test wins that. If a baseball team wins the World Series, could you imagine if the World Series was only two out of three games? Could you imagine if the playoff games, they do have one-game playoffs for some type of tiebreakers, but even the, the playoff games are three out of five, four out of seven in the World Series. Why? The better player wins. Well, maybe there's more opportunities for gambling on two. I don't know. But why? Randomness, only the top teams win. Only the top, top golfers win. My daughter was a swimmer, and now she's a runner. And it was amazing to me there's a difference between summer swimming and it was sort of social swimming and real swimming. The summer swimming, they only have 50-meter races, 50 meters down and back, 50-meter 50, 50 races. And guess what? Anybody wins. The rabbit wins. The tortoise never wins. It's, it's always something flashy. Does the person have to train? Well, yeah, but only the fast twitch muscles people win. It's never too long as to be too strenuous. It's pretty much kids who don't train. And then you've got real swimmers who train for hours, and some of them are great endurance tests. Oh, and education. We bring in the education. Just recently in South Carolina, Do you? can you believe this? But I know you, you understand it. Recent, it used to be that an A in South Carolina was 93 to 100. A B was 83 to 93. A C was 75 to 93. And you're, you're, you're with me now on this. A D was, I think, 65 to 75. Oh, they moved, they dumbed it down, they lowered the bar from 100 to 90 is an A, 80 to 90 is a B. They dumbed it down. Why? Now it's easier to get over the bar. More people can be successful. Well, that's fine, but what does that do to your top students that really, really stood out. Does the cream really stand out now? Or is the cream brought back into the pot and stirred and we allow, we're trying to force something out, but we don't even have a situation where it can come out naturally? So part of the time 
Oh, gosh, I, I'll give you this story. So yesterday, we have our mile for time on my team. So I require a 525 mile here at the Citadel where I coach. I used to require at Clemson for years a 515 mile. And somebody said, wow, that's really, really hard. Well, you know what? It is really, really hard. There's some fantastic stories about players in some epic things that people still talk about. And I had a brag, there was a, a man named Chris Robinson. Chris, five foot eight, small kid, is diabetic, had all of these things, fast twitch muscle, not one slow twitch muscle in his body. Do you know back in 1991, 92, in there when he was a freshman on the team, he came in. First of all, he trained all summer. He knew that the mile 515 was going to be a great, great task for him. He trained all summer, and he got there, and for eight times, eight times, he failed to make the mile time. Eight times he failed. I always would put the kids who were not, did not make the mile time, I did not let them practice on the varsity courts. They practiced on the side courts. Well, Chris had to go to the side courts. When he finally made the mile, and it's a great, great story about the whole thing about it, and the team being there and, and how he made the mile time, and I won't go into it. I've written it up several times, and I've told the story several times. But when he finally made the mile, the team carried him around. It was the, one of my highlights seeing the, of my coaching career. It's not the championships. It's not the other fluff stuff. Those are all great. But to see him being carried around after late October, I'm talking August, September, Ten weeks, he didn't get to play with the varsity as a freshman. Ten weeks, he trained. Ten weeks, him making the mile time finally, one of the greatest moments that I've had that the team ever had, and it's still talked about, because the bar was not lowered. So yesterday, our mile time is 525, with 16 players coming out for the team. Nine made it. I had three starters from last year not make the mile time. They're not coming to practice now. They're not, not going to be practicing. Their, their afternoons are going to be spent at the track. Until they make the mile time, they can't, cannot be members of the program. And we'll give them the love, but we'll keep the bar up. We'll give them the love. We care deeply, but we're going to keep the bar up. What happens? People beg, oh, my golly, can't you make an exception in this one exception? People beg you, please lower the bar. Don't you understand? This student, he just has a hard time in math. It would be so much better if a, an A was a 90, 90 instead, instead of a 93. He's got a 91.5 average. Can't you give him an A? And you do so much harm if you do do that. You cannot lower the bar once you have it up. Because if you lower the bar, you will never get it back up. And you do those people a great disservice. To the five, six people who did not make their mile time yesterday or seven on my team, I had a meeting and I said this can go two ways. Number one, you can say someone else's fault, it's unfair, it's just not right, and you can come up with a reason in your head 
and you'll be missing a big opportunity of your lifetime and a big opportunity to make this team. To make the team is an is a great, great thing. To make a team to not get cut is a great, great thing, especially at a college. But even at a high school, to make a team is a great, great thing. So if we dilute it, pollute it, we end up prostituting it. We end up selling out. There's so much brought on a coach now to, oh, please lower the standards. Oh, for this kid, just this one time. If you do that, you will never have quality again because as easy as it is to lower the bar, it's twice as hard to raise the bar back up. You will never get it back up if you lower the bar. Don't do it. I was fortunate enough to work for the great Harry Hopman when I first started out in tennis. And all I can tell you is this story. At 22 years old and a college graduate, I only played one year of high school uh, college basketball, played all through high school in Indiana, played one year of college basketball when they had freshman teams. So really, tennis, was, I was better in college than I was in basketball. So in tennis, I came out, and guess what? I wanted to be a basketball coach. I wanted to be a high school math teacher. So what happened? I got a summer job working for the great Harry Hopman. And with the great Harry Hopman just being around him, and if we had two personal conversations in the first 10-week period where I made $70 a week working for him, room, board, and experience is what I got. Two, I can't remember two conversations, but just being around him, I realized I am in I am in the presence of greatness. I would like to see what greatness looks like. This man absolutely knew the difference between diamonds and rhinestones. Flashy rhinestones are something that looks big but never holds up. The diamond is subtle. The diamond looks like a rock that if you don't know what you're looking for, but the diamond lasts forever. And he was a diamond. And because of him, and then I got a job in New York for a one year, little over about a one year period after that. And I got to work for him and see him every day. And with him, I saw what he did with children, setting the bar, making them get over it. And he had champion after champion after champion after champion come out of the, the place up there, and I don't know I can promote it. I don't want to promote it on the air, so I might find fault. But I, they had people like a young John McEnroe, Vetus Gerolitis, Mary Carrillo, uh, gosh, Peter Renner. We had uh, these people, Peter Fleming. We had just great player after great player come out of there, and there was no magic other than he would not lower the bar. The standard was set. He would not lower the bar. Diamonds take time, and it takes pressure to turn coal into diamonds. He knew how to do it. I was around a diamond, a diamond maker. Oh, my golly, I've written seven books. Praise the Lord for my opportunities, but more for a man named Brother Raymond, who was my teacher when I went to an all-boys parochial high school in Indianapolis, Indiana. And this guy was the toughest teacher ever. And how much I respect him is this. How much I respect him was this. I recently went to my 50th anniversary of my high school. And there was a picture of him in a yearbook that I saw. And in that picture was an assignment that he had on the black 
whiteboard on Socrates or someone, and guess what? I took a picture of that picture so I could read what he had written, and to this day, 50 years later, I am able to write seven books, and I did them by hand. The first one I did by hand, no computers. Then I, I did all of them myself. Only the two Clemson books did I was I was I helped, and I was part of a two and three man crew. But uh, all the tennis books that I did, I did from scratch, and I'm so so very proud of doing those books. Coaching tennis is still out there, folks. Look up coaching tennis on Amazon. It's one of the Best-selling books, but one of the top coaching books out there, I am very, very proud to say. I also had a coach named John McLeod in basketball. I had a coach, Bill Green, in basketball. I had coach Larry Ware in tennis in college. But these coaches were tough. They set the bar. They did not lower it. So when we're talking about what really, really makes a diamond, our, look, our, our top events in tennis are our grand slams, Right? our Grand Slams, our Davis Cup. These are our top events. How will we ever have something worth talking about or bragging about or remembering 50 years from now if these things are dumbed down? My contention is I am USTA, USA Tennis. You don't make champions by lowering the bar. Maybe... We are scared to death. Maybe, there's element of doubt in there, maybe we are scared to death, folks, that we won't have a champion again if the bar stays too high. Hey, it's been 16 years since we've had a USA men's champion. Three out of five sets, 16 years. That's 64 tries since Andy Roddick in 2002. We had Agassi and Sampras at the last the end of the 1990s, early 2000s. Andy Roddick was our last, 2002. Folks, 64 tries. USA, the greatest country in the world. Zero champions on the Grand Slams. Well, let's lower the bar, huh? What? Will we really have a champion? Will we really have a champion if we lower the bar? Are we just going to crown somebody like we put a bumper sticker on the back of the car and said, my kid is a terrific kid at Palmetto Junior High. My kid did this. Or guess what, a participation trophy just like we do in Little League. Are we going to dumb it down to that place? Think that's laughable? Think that's not possible? Think again. You dumb this down now, the Davis Cup and the Grand Slams. <laughs> Look, we're, we're in trouble. If we continue to dumb down this scoring system, really, will we really have champions? The U.S. has had no champions. The Wall Street Journal even ran an article last week at the beginning of the U.S. Open. It says the long drought has been 15, well, 16 years. It'll be 16 years. On the women's side, we've had Serena and Venus, and that's about it. They are a little bit better, and I saw the article they're trying to tout and Try to talk about how many how the women are looking so good. We've got these great junior players in the boys' side. If they mess up this group of boys coming up, the Francis Tiafos, the Taylor Fritzes, and the gang, if they don't come through, it's not. We've had plenty of talent that get sidelines. 
In college tennis, it's not happening. Here is the point. I don't I don't care how nice or a nice person or whatever people we have in the ITA or the USTA. If they don't know the fine wine, the taste of fine wine or what a diamond is like Harry Hoffman, or if they've not done the reps in 40 years of coaching or 30 years of coaching, how can they, if they've done something else and they're just an appreciator of tennis or a tennis organizer, really know what the bar should be set as? How do they know? Why do they have the right to be in these positions of authority if they do not know what excellence is? I know that I do not want to go out on the pro tour and coach. I could not be probably a Davis Cup coach. I did not play professional tennis. That is a big, big wall, a big factor. That is a a filtering system. Uh, since I did not play professional tennis, it would be hard for me to be a Davis Cup coach or a Grand Slam coach. I've look, my my juniors have won five Grand Slams. I've been in nine finals, but I have not been on the tour. I've coached a little bit on the tour, but I have not been as a player on the tour. So the litmus test there is, I don't know what that's like. But I've seen 30,000 matches. I've paid attention to 30,000 matches. I've written five tennis books. I know what I've seen tennis for 47 years, so I've got pretty doggone good trained eyes. But I could never go into a profession like architecture, music, drama, any of these other things and say, hey, I'm an expert. I really know what that's like. It is a tragedy that, there's nothing more pathetic than to put small people in big positions. There is nothing more pathetic than to not honor the wisdom and the traditions of a person like a Harry Hopman and to realize what he was like or a John McLeod or these great, great coaches that inspire and they know what diamond cutting they, – they really know the difference between what a diamond is and what a rhinestone is. The others don't know the standard. I want to to reverse this just a second. I don't have that much time left, but I want to reverse this. What if if we did three out of five sets for women? What if we did three out of five sets for women? Do you believe there would only be about five top players in the world that could really play a great fifth set? It's always only been two out of three. I know. Look, women are tougher than men in many, many instances. But they do two out of three. So there's multiple champions, aren't there? Aren't there? Do you know who's number one in the world right now? You might, but do you keep up with it? But on the men's side, because they have three out of five, you know exactly who they are. It's Federer, Djokovic, it's Nadal, and recently it's been, it was Murray a little bit. And we're hoping that these other players, TM, we hope that the Francis Tiafos and those players in the United States can get tough enough, can get ready enough. And once they get through that filter over that wall and they pass the gate uh, that only few get through, once they pass through those rites of passage, then they will be at a completely different level. But we are not making champions. So I say that success for the U.S., hey, folks, we got to lower the bar. We got to lower the bar. Let's lower it so everybody feels like a champion. Maybe we'll have a champion. Maybe we'll have a U.S. Open champion. 
Maybe we'll have a Grand Slam champion if we've just played two out of three. Oh, let's hey folks, let's play two out of three, no ad scoring, ten point tiebreaker at the third set. I bet we'll have five champions. But here's the point. Will they really be a champion? Or just a champion in name only? Easy to pick up, easy to put down. Hard to pick up, hard to put down. Great feats are remembered. Lesser feats are forgotten. What determines it? The way that you publicize it, the way you promote it? Wow. Even something like a U.S. Open, a Wimbledon, a a French Open. French Open has to be the greatest title ever, three out of five sets. Three out of five sets. My golly, the people that won those, like the Courier and and the Chang, and and I think Agassi won one, but... The people who win the French, we know that they're the toughest people. We know. Whoever wins the heavyweight championship of the world in boxing, we know they're the toughest person out there. We used to anyway. Shame is we've allowed the marketers to take over so much that nobody even knows who the heavyweight champion champion of the world is anymore. Will anybody know when we market it to death who the real top tennis players are? Will there be anything to push, uh, push our youngsters to higher and a greater level? Will there be anything that inspires, that gives passion to that youngster to go out and hit balls on the wall until his hands or her hands bleed? Will there be any greatness when we continue to say that everybody's great or everybody's good? And guess what? You're a champion, but in name only. Great feats inspire. Lesser feats do not. Lesser feats blow away. You will remember greatness based on how tough something was, how hard it was. A champion name only is not really a champion. A champion knows. I want to get this statement right because I said this to my son the other day. Son, I want you to understand something. Once you suffer greatly to achieve something, you will never, ever, ever forget what you put into it, and there will never be anything that is more valuable to you and to your heart than knowing that journey that you have made, and when you're finally successful at making that journey, it will be something no one can ever take away from you. Lesser feats. No matter how you crown them with trophies or anything else, do great damage to the potential champion. A good good, a good bad, a bad good, and a bad bad. A good good is you do all the right things. Something is very, very hard to do, and you succeed. A good bad is you do everything that you need to to succeed, and you fail, but you learn. A bad good is a participation trophy. Lowering the bar. Giving something to someone they haven't earned. Dumbing it down so they can achieve. Lowering the standard for grades. Lowering the standard for a school. Lowering the standard for admissions. Lowering the standards to be on a band. Lowering the standards to be on a football team. Lowering the standards to be on a tennis team. Lowering everything 
That that is the worst thing you could do because it becomes a bad good, and then a bad bad. Well, (laughs) I don't have to explain that to to you, as you know. So that's why I believe maybe it's not about the gambling money. Maybe it's not about those those teams just winning, wanting to win some matches up in the East in college. That's why they changed the whole system. That's why they dumbed it down. That's why they moved everything. That's why they took away the practice dates. That's why they made it easier. Maybe they just wanted success. Really, maybe everybody's just looking for that champion. And you know what? We're doing it in the worst possible way that we could ever do it. Success for the U.S. Let's just lower the bar, folks. Lower the bar. Lower the bar. Why not? We can we can frame it any way we want to. We we can tie up dog poo and a pink ribbon and frame it in a nice frame and say, hey, this is really great. In the end, it's still dog poo. We need to keep the bar up. As a teacher, as a parent, and you as a student, if you're out there listening to this program, no, never lower your bar. If you do, you may never get it back up. And guess what? When you fail, you'll be okay. You'll pick up the pieces. You'll do better next time. But not only that, look, I never got my my goal of playing NBA basketball never happened growing up in Indiana. What happens, though, folks, is you'll transfer it to something else, and you'll understand with all your heart what the journey was really about. It was not about that success. It was about you being number one in the world at being yourself. And that's the whole deal. And I've run out of time, but God bless each and every one of you. Thank you for what you do for young people. Do not lower the bar. USA, we cannot lower the bar. We may never get it back up. Thanks for what you do. And thank you for listening.